All right, would you join me please in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father God, thank you for all the good gifts you give us, and uh, your word tells us that people are a gift. We thank you for Anne, we thank you for, uh, for her testimony. She came to faith as a child in this church. What a marvelous thing you've done in her life and in the lives of so many others. Thank you for uh, preparing her for us and for leading her into this leadership role. Lord, help her to have good rest and good energy uh, in the work she has before her, getting ready for VBS, and then uh, assuming the leadership role in our children's ministry. We praise you for Anne. We praise you for Kate Dupre and her good work here and her long tenure here and for what a friend she is to so many of us. Father, this is a big Sunday for us. We've got a lot of moving parts, but none more important than what we're about to do right here. We're going to submit ourselves to your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we study this passage, you would help us to believe it. Would you give us the grace that would remove scales from our eyes, hardness from our hearts, that the word we read, we would believe, and that belief would be evidenced by action, by obedience. Thank you for the mercies you've given us here and for the glorious story you've given us to share. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. For so many people, our ability to engage a person in conversation depends on the topic at hand. So for example, we can talk easily, freely, openly, even with strangers about our kids, or about our work, or about our sports teams, or about our favorite restaurants. Those things are no problem at all. We can talk it up easy. Uh, Last summer, I went to a Red Sox game. I passed a guy wearing a, a shirt from a college team that I like a lot, the Wichita State Shockers. And to see a Wichita State shirt at Fenway blew my mind. And it's Soon as I saw this guy, I was like, Wichita State! And he didn't know this, but that's when we became best friends. It was fantastic. <laughs> so I don't know this guy from anyone, but we can sit and talk. We can share landmarks. What are you doing here? Are you lost? How'd you get? What is it? It's easy, depending on the subject matter, to talk with people, even strangers, about some of these things. But when it comes to talking about Jesus, so many Christians lose their voice and lose their nerve. The thought of engaging another person in a conversation about faith is a scary thought. All kinds of fears rise to the surface. How how do you even start that conversation? What if I say the wrong thing in the conversation? What if I make the person mad? What if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? What if my head explodes? All these Negative hypotheticals come to the surface when we think about speaking the gospel, sharing our faith, leveraging a conversation towards Jesus Christ. And so, as a result, there's a sad pattern in so many Christian lives. The sad pattern is this. We come to church. We raise our voices in worship together. We find encouragement and strength. And then we go back to our homes, in our work, in our schools, and we practice our faith in silence and timidity. As if the full scope of Christianity is to go to church and avoid bad things. But it's clear from Mark's gospel and from the testimony of Scripture that there's more to Christianity than just this. 
But look, I get it. You get it. I know how intimidating it can be to think about telling another person about Jesus. But there's no other way to be a follower of Jesus Christ than to be a storyteller, than to be someone who shares the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around us. And today what we study in Mark chapter 6 encourages us towards a bold, public, regular witness of Jesus Christ. In Mark 6, we find the disciples in a similar type of situation. If you'll think back through our study through Mark so far, the disciples don't have so many positive marks in their direction. They are quite dense. They miss the point often. They're with Jesus all the time, and still their faith is imperfect, and their faith struggles. And so I think in their example, we find a reflection of ourselves. And what does Jesus do with these disciples who are barely qualified, whose faith isn't perfect, who struggle to get basic things right? What does he do with them? He gives them authority and power and sends them out with the gospel message. And just as it was in Nazareth on that day, so it is here on this day. Jesus has not changed. His authority and power are still given to his followers. And the mission remains the same to make Christ known. So my goal with this passage today is to empower us to a more regular and confident sharing of the story of Jesus Christ. If we study Mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 13 correctly, we're going to walk out of here emboldened, strengthened, empowered to talk about Christ, to share our faith with others. So when we think about sharing our faith, all these what ifs often come up. Well, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, dispels those what ifs by telling us what we can expect. And that's what I want to show you in this passage today. Three things gospel sharers can expect when they tell other people about Jesus Christ. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So I want to show you in this passage three things 
Gospel speakers can expect. Let's dispel some myths and let's find some strength and courage this morning. What can you expect if you're going to share the gospel with people? Number one is this expect rejection. Thanks, Cody. I came to church for this. That's right. Expect rejection. Verses one through six. Mark never leaves us wondering where we are on the map in his storytelling. He always gives us these geographical markers. So Jesus has been around the Sea of Galilee, going from village to village, but now he leaves that area in verse 1 and goes to his hometown. We know that his hometown is a place called Nazareth. It is an extremely small community. It is not a community of any significance whatsoever. When you entered Nazareth, the sign said, Welcome to Nazareth. And the other side of the sign said, Now leaving Nazareth. That's how small Nazareth was. Very little, uh, barely any historians reference the the town at all. So he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. It's not exactly next door to the Sea of Galilee. It's a 40-mile walk from the city of Capernaum to the town, the village of Nazareth. Takes his disciples and along they go. Now this isn't our first introduction to Jesus' family. Uh, If you will remember back in chapter 3, there's this very strange interaction between Jesus and his family. Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles. Word gets back to Nazareth, to his mother and his siblings, and says, here's what Jesus is doing. He's stirring everything up. And they believed, his family believed that he was out of his mind. So you remember this scene in chapter 3? They come to take him. And Jesus is in a house teaching, and he gets word, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And here's how Jesus responded, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So when chapter 6 verse 1 opens and Mark tells us that Jesus went to his hometown, you're supposed to make this sound, ooh, it's, there's tension that awaits and tension unfolds. Jesus, Jesus gets into Nazareth. Mark tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. Look at how the people responded to his teaching in verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they ask the question, what's the wisdom that has been given him? In this, they reject his teaching. They make this statement. He even does miracles. They reject his works, his compassion. Can you imagine such a scene? Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. Jesus doing miracles and the people rejecting him. It's not the response you would expect. You, you would think the hometown boy would receive a big welcome, but far from it. They essentially respond to him by saying, who do you think you are? You're just little Jesus. We've known you since you were a baby. You're not some big deal coming back in here to Nazareth with all your big words. and that, that. That's the kind of response they give to him. Isn't this just a carpenter? We learn a few things about Jesus in their response. We learn, one, that he's a carpenter. The word translated carpenter, uh, is, it's a general term like builder or craftsman. Uh, the bottom line is that Jesus worked with his hands. 
The second thing we learn is that his father is not on the scene. Where is Joseph at this time? We don't know for sure, but the popular opinion is that he's dead at this point. Otherwise, he would have been named among the family members. Another thing we learn is that Jesus has a lot of siblings. Uh, His siblings, up to this point, have not been supporters of his ministry. But we know that after the resurrection, they all become believers. So Mary and the siblings are present with the disciples in Jerusalem after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1. Later, his family is identified by Paul as traveling missionaries in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. His brother James becomes a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church and is traditionally identified as the author of the New Testament book by the same name. And also his brother Jude is identified as the author of the New Testament uh, letter that is uh, named after him as well. We don't know anything else about his brothers Joseph or Simon. We don't know anything about his sisters either. It's possible that by this point his sisters are already married and living in Nazareth. That's why the, the town folks say, aren't his sisters here with us? Now, there's a point of contention between Catholic Church and Protestant Church as to whether or not Jesus had siblings. I want us to talk about it for just a quick minute. Uh, The popular Catholic opinion, theology, has been this. Uh, Mary, uh, there's a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary only had one child, that's Jesus. He's not only uh, conceived miraculously, but delivered miraculously, and Mary throughout her life has no more children. And so, throughout the the ages, uh, Catholic thinkers and speakers and writers have addressed the case of Jesus' siblings in a number of different ways. Some have said, well, these are actually step-siblings. They're from Joseph, uh, a previous marriage of Joseph's. Others have said, these are actually cousins. And the problem with this view is that there is a Greek word for cousins, and it's not used here. The Greek word for brothers And the Greek word for sisters is used here, not cousins. There's a distinct difference. More presently, the Catholic Church would explain this very passage in this way. They would say that uh, these are not his actual flesh and blood brothers. These are spiritual brothers in the same way that you and I are Jesus' spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters. And so this is not him. And in fact, this Mary is a different Mary, not his mother. This is, she's not identified as his own mother. This is a different Mary who gave birth to these people named here. All this to defend a doctrine, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Here's the problem. It's a sad thing when doctrine drives our interpretation of Scripture. So all ye good Baptists, listen up. Uh, doctrine is the child of Scripture, not the mother of Scripture. There's a profound difference. We've got to make sure we get first things first. And in this matter, the best course of action and the right course of action is to believe the plain testimony of Scripture. I know we're dealing with very delicate matters. The place of Mary in, in the Catholic Church is a very sacred place and a very sensitive matter. My goal in mentioning this is not to beat anyone up, But just to say, here's something you've got to wrestle with. Scripture says this. Doctrine says this, very different. We've got to decide where our allegiance will lie, with the doctrine or with the word. Uh, We want to choose the word. This is where power and hope and life is found. And for us, Mary is a wonderful mother of many children. And notable among them, of course, is Jesus Christ. So, the good folk of Nazareth, they're not going to 
have Jesus talking this way, acting this way. They won't tolerate him acting like a big shot in their estimation. So at the end of verse 3 is this devastating line. It says, they took offense at him. I mean, can you believe that? Jesus comes in, I have good news. Here's, uh, I'm, I'm going to do miracles and heal people as well to, to show you what this good news is like. And they can't handle it. They reject his teachings. In doing so, they reject his truth. They reject his works. In doing so, they reject his compassion. His truth and compassion are pushed out by these people. And as it was in Nazareth on that day, so it is today in many other places and in many other hearts. It's a sad reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to so many people. And this is not a new development, as if 2018 is somehow unique in the scope of human history. It's been this way since Jesus. I would venture to say what we experience today in the offense at the gospel is not even unique in its intensity compared to history. It's just the way it has always been. And so there's nothing to be surprised at. Saddened, sure, but not surprised when the message of Jesus Christ is called unloving, hateful, backwards, and a host of other vulgarities. Now when it comes to the issue of the gospel causing offense, I find that so many Christians exist on a spectrum in between two extremes. On one extreme of the, of the spectrum are people who recoil from causing offense. Christians who want to do all they can to be a friend to people and to not offend people. And so in order to do this, they refuse to stand in the truth of the gospel out of fear of causing offense. Their goal is not to upset anyone, so they barely identify publicly as a Christian and certainly never speak the gospel, silenced by the fear of causing an offense. That's one extreme. The other extreme of the spectrum are those Christians who almost delight in causing offense, They justify their abrasive behavior by blaming the lostness of the offended one. So let's pay close attention in this story to what Jesus did that caused offense. What did Jesus do? Jesus taught the gospel and he did miracles. He spoke the truth and he showed compassion. These are the things that caused offense. He didn't change his message so as to appease these hard-hearted locals, nor did he come in swinging a hammer as if he's going to win a fight in this instance. So if your Christianity has never caused discomfort or awkwardness or even offense, then brother and sister, search your heart and see if you have been timid out of fear. Your witness has a lot of compassion, but it lacks truth. We've got to speak the truth. And if your Christianity causes offense everywhere you go, then brother, sister, search your heart and quit being a jerk to people. Your witness contains truth, but it lacks compassion. Both extremes have a love problem. One says, I love you and I don't want to offend you. The other says, I love you, which is why I offend you. But a Christ-like witness is the powerful combination of truth and compassion together. We will cause the right kind of offense when we speak the gospel with truth and compassion. So Jesus responds to their offense in verse 4 with a proverb about the rejection of prophets by their own people. It reminds me of the words of John. 
John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 describes Jesus this way. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And his stay in Nazareth is marked by this sad conclusion in verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, that seems like a silly thing to say. I could only just do a few miracles today. But when we think about what was possible, what was available in the presence of Christ in a little bit of faith, it is a sad statement about the people of Nazareth that they missed out on this incredible blessing. Jesus was willing to do so much more had they only believed. It's a sad scene altogether. Verse 2 says the people are amazed at Jesus' teaching, amazed in a negative way. Verse 6 says Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. What sad bookends to this account. Now, I think in this scene, Jesus calls to two different groups of people. First of all, he speaks to those who are not believers, those who are not active followers and have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. He speaks to you this morning. And what he says to you is, do not be like the people of Nazareth. Do not reject the truth of Jesus Christ. And do not deny his compassion for you. He knows you by name, every step you've taken, and he's provided the solution to your sin problem long before you were even aware there was a problem. The truth of Jesus Christ is this. We are all sinners. Every one of us has a Nazareth heart in us. Every one of us. That's our starting point is rejection and denial and arrogance. Every one of us. And it's for this reason that God took on flesh and came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross and he died in our place. Our rejection, which deserves our death, was paid for by him. He dies our death. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means everything he said is true. What he said about himself is singularly, powerfully true. He is the author of life and salvation. That's the truth. And his compassion is seen in that he laid down his life and he rose again. And in his grace, he lets you hear this message from his word today to call you to be his child. So he says to you, don't reject the truth. Don't reject my compassion. But rather, come to Jesus Christ today in faith. Do not let the summary of your life be, Jesus was amazed at my lack of but rather come in belief and let Jesus Christ save you, forgive you, make you whole through your trust in him. There's a second group Jesus speaks to in this passage. He speaks to Christians, and what he does for us is he normalizes not only the rejection of the gospel, but the rejection of the messenger. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that your allegiance to Christ comes with hostility from the world. When you are rejected for your truth and compassion, you walk in a path forged by Christ himself. And Jesus will suffer far more rejection than what happens here in piddly little Nazareth, won't he? If you were to go to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 38, you will see that the people who nailed him to the cross mocked him. The people who watched him, those spectators that day, spit on him and insulted him. Even the two criminals who were crucified on either side of him insulted him while he hung there. 
He will suffer far more shame than this. In fact, Christ will bear our shame. So what shame can the world heap on us? Let the truth of the gospel and the compassion of the cross give you courage in your proclamation of the gospel. So, what can you expect if you're going to tell people about Christ? Rejection. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Not a big deal. Here's the second thing you can expect. Expect to go. Verses 6 through 11, expect to go. Expect rejection. In response to that rejection, expect to go. What does Jesus do when his hometown rejects him? Look at the middle of verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. He doesn't sulk or pout. He keeps going. He has a mission to fulfill. And that mission is preaching the gospel in all the villages he can. And not only does Jesus respond to this rejection by going to more villages, but he also mobilizes his disciples to go out on their own to preach as well. If the people of Nazareth thought they would shut Jesus down by being snarky and arrogant towards him, they were wrong. They poked the bear. And in chapter 6, Jesus begins to expand his ministry beyond himself through his disciples to the world around him. The rejecting world is an invaded world. That's how Jesus responds to rejection. So in verses 7 through 11, Jesus gives his disciples some instructions for the mission he's sending them on. How are we to understand these instructions? Should we take these as uh, enduring, literal instructions to be applied to every missionary or every minister or every sharer of the gospel to the present day? I would say, no, that's not what Jesus' intention is here. Even Matthew and Luke, as gospel writers themselves, did not take these instructions and repeat them verbatim as if they had been codified by Jesus. But I think there are some important principles that you and I could take from this that would help us in our being sent to a world that rejects the gospel. What are those principles? In verse 7, Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs. Hey, you don't have to do ministry alone. And I think when you do solo ministry, you open yourself to attack by the enemy. It is good to do ministry together. I heard a great story uh, recently about a couple in our church that will invite Christian friends and their non-Christian friends over to their place for dinner. It's this collision of these two worlds. They're not doing ministry on their own. They're going to influence the lives of these friends that they love who don't know Christ, and they're going to use their brothers and sisters in Christ to do this thing. We don't need to do ministry alone. We do it together. Here's another principle. In verse 7, Jesus gives them authority over evil spirits. I think this is true for the church today, literally true. We have this authority from Christ to take territory back from the enemy. And the authority he hands over to the disciples here, he will do again in what is perhaps a more popular or a grander way, before his ascension into heaven, when he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, now go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus transfers his authority to the disciples, to the apostles. And with that authority, they do amazing things. Authority has been a big theme these last few weeks. If you think back with me, when Jesus quiets the storm, here's his authority over all creation. When Jesus casts the demons, the legion of demons, out of the man uh, in in the Gerasene region, he shows his authority over all things spiritual. Last week, when Jesus not only heals the woman, but then raises the little girl from the dead, here's his authority over life and death. That authority over all things I give to you. 
Not the authority of Cody or anyone else. It's the authority of Christ over evil spirits to advance the gospel and to rescue souls from the enemy. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus tells the disciples to travel light. There might be something here for us to learn in the way we structure our lives. We have so many self-appointed handcuffs that keep us from being able to say yes when Christ calls. Debt, sin, all kinds of brokenness. But brothers and sisters, we've got to be ready. Ears open, eyes open for the opportunities before us that we would be willing to say yes at a moment's notice. And what's more, in traveling light, these disciples are put into a place where they have to rely on God's provision for them. Every day, they would have to rely on God to provide food and shelter, all the things that they needed. They didn't even take money with them, not even an extra shirt. Just go with what you have. Now, we shouldn't warp this principle in such a way that we would make foolish decisions and call it faith. But we should lean wholeheartedly on our Heavenly Father to meet our every need as we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the mission of Christ advances, we lack nothing. God has a vested interest in this. If we believe His Word, and He's given us this work to spread the gospel, to proclaim the good news, then when we endeavor in these works individually and corporately, God blesses His obedient children, meets our needs cares for us, gives us what we require. Verse 10, he tells them to stay in a house until they leave that city. In other words, they're not to use their ministry as an opportunity for upward advancement, as if hospitality might come from a person of lower class, but then they might gain favor with someone else and so advance on. Just go to the one that shows you hospitality. Love all people equally. The gospel is for all people. Share that with them and then go. In verse 11, Jesus gives him important instructions to not be defeated by rejection. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. I think the disciples go with Jesus to Nazareth for this very teaching moment. They need to see another example of Christ rejected even by his own tribe, his own people so that they themselves will know they walk in the way of Christ when they face rejection and difficulties as well. So when the world roars against the church, the church doesn't withdraw. We don't cower. We advance. We invade with truth and compassion. We invade with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, Man, as as much as we can, let's quit complaining about the state of the world. Yeah, it's bad. That's not a headline anywhere. But no Christian should be surprised by this, and we certainly should not be silenced by this. Our response is not to withdraw, not to build up walls, not to become preservers of purity, but to advance in the purity of Christ against the evil one. We go in the name of Jesus Christ, in the authority of Christ, with a ready yes, brothers and sisters locked in arms for the work he has called us to. An advancing church resembles Jesus, obeys Jesus, walks with Jesus. A retreating church hastens the rot of society. Put our names in the headlines as the cause of the advance of sin if we do not obey Jesus Christ in this. 
we can expect to be rejected. And we can expect Jesus to say, fly, little birds, fly. (laughs) Get out there in the power and authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim that word with boldness for the sake of the souls around you. So expect rejection. Expect to go. Here's the third and last thing you can expect. Expect to win. Verses 12 and 13, expect to win. Look at what it says. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. I think here in verses 12 and 13, we find the highlight of the passage. A lot of ink is given to Nazareth and all of their dysfunction. A lot of ink and good ink is given to Jesus' instructions to the disciples. All this is preparation for this moment. Verses 12 and 13 are the highlight of this passage where the gospel's proclaimed and miracles are performed and the cause of Christ advances against the evil one. Now, we cannot overstate the effectiveness of a Christ-empowered gospel witness. All too often we assume that some people might be beyond reach. They're too hardened, too far gone. But I want you to remember what we've learned about Jesus in these recent weeks. All of his authority over nature, over all things spiritual, over life and death, all of that is transferred to his church. So when Christians pursue souls with the gospel, it's not a fair fight. It may not be a fast fight, but it is certainly not a fair fight. The gospel of Christ wins every time. His power is unmatched. The ability to rescue souls from sin and hell cannot be defeated. The gospel succeeds in the lives of people who hear it and believe. Now, anytime you share the gospel with another person, there are three possible outcomes. One outcome is this, you might share the gospel and get mocked, insulted. What does the Bible say about those who get mocked for the sake of the gospel? Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So if you share the gospel and you get mocked, good news, you win. There's another possible outcome. You might share the gospel, and instead of being mocked, you're killed. What does the Bible say about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. So if you share the gospel and it takes your life, you win. Here's another possibility. You might share the gospel with another person, and they would believe And what does the Bible say about this? Luke chapter 15, verse 7, heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. So you share the gospel and they believe, guess what? You win. You share and you're insulted, you win. You share and you're killed, you win. You share and they believe you win. How do you lose in this endeavor? There's one way to lose. You don't share. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them can you imagine if jesus conferred all this authority on the disciples gave them instructions gave them authority and power sent them out and they responded by going for a cup of coffee sitting in the dirt not going in the power 
and the mission that Christ has given him. We would be outraged if that were the way the story went. So let's not live our lives in that kind of foolish disobedience. Let's move forward in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is victory that awaits. The gospel always wins. So Mark has given us such excellent encouragement this morning to share the gospel of Christ in our world. All those who follow Christ in this way can expect rejection, not a big whoop. We're not scared by that. You can expect still to be sent, not retreat. We're going to go. We're going to advance against the enemy and the authority and power of Jesus Christ. And you can expect to win. Every time you share, you win. Every time. Because this whole endeavor is defined by Christ's death and resurrection. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to look back on this past week. Let's go back from now to, say, Monday. And recalling your week, thinking of where you've been, the conversations you've had, does your life give evidence that you are living as one who has been sent by Christ in the power of Christ? Let's evaluate these past few days. Do I see myself as one actively living on mission with Jesus Christ? Did you speak about Jesus? Did you invest the word in your children? If you're a student, did you tell a classmate about the hope of Jesus Christ in some way? Did you stop and pray for the friend who was telling you how bad things have been lately? I don't mean tell them I'll pray for you. I mean right there, I'm going to pray for you. Did you take action to alleviate someone's suffering? Did your life take territory away from the evil one in this past week? Give yourself credit where credit is due. This is not intended just to heap guilt. But we need to see our lives through the same lens as Jesus Christ. We need to understand that our words and our function are to be colored by His mission and His power. He's given us this incredible privilege to work in His name. And to rescue people from from hell. That's your glorious task. Having thought about the week behind, let's think now about the week ahead. Who will you engage with? How will you leverage conversations towards Christ? How will you invest the word in your family? What will next Sunday be like when you come in here having experienced Christ's faithfulness and the power of the gospel? You sang loud today. Can you imagine what that voice would be like next week? Having seen Christ glorified in your obedience and your trust in Him. On this day, June 10th, 1991, 27 years ago, I sat in an open-air tabernacle and a man named Frank preached the gospel to me and a bunch of teenagers. I, it was as if he was just talking to me. And he told me and all the others about the horrors of our sin. And he told us about Christ's sacrifice at the cross and the reality of the resurrection and his promise to save whoever came to him in faith. And on that night in Texas, 
my heart was on fire with faith in Jesus Christ. And I was rescued from the punishment I deserved and rescued from the evil one who kept me in that punishment. I was resistant, but Frank was sent. And he was faithful. And he shared the gospel to this boy who rejected Christ. And Christ won. It wasn't a fair fight then. And it's not a fair fight today. Church, tell the story. Claim the victory. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise your holy name. We are here today, those of us who are your children, because someone was faithful to tell the story to us. Someone was faithful to go in obedience to your call. And whether from a pulpit or at a table or in some conversation one-on-one, told us of who you are and what salvation is like. And we said yes when you called Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your salvation you've given to us. So I pray that would come today to friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They have hitched their lives to doctrine, but not to a Savior. They've been religious or spiritual, but, but they have not died to themselves and given their lives to Christ. Today, would you give them the courage and the boldness to do so? Awaken that heart to faith. Let this be the saving moment, Father God, please. And for my brothers and sisters who live in such fear and timidity, Lord, let us go in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ without hindrance, sly as a serpent, harmless as doves, with truth and compassion to see lives rescued from the evil one. Thank you for the call you've put on our lives, a call to believe and a call to proclaim. Give us strength to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.